0: Hello again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry from the Pacific the Northwest. Today is the 23rd of September, just one day since the last podcast, and it's actually the first day of fall. So happy fall. Autumn is my favorite season. As I'm told, a lot of people feel similarly. So let's get right back into a discussion of leptin. That's where we are today. We've been talking about the adipokine leptin. Let me remind you that leptin treatment elicits a rapid and, you know, like a substantial, I guess I'd call it a plasticity of the synaptic inputs to both the neuropeptide Y and the agouti RP, as well as POMC neurons. Uh, and the POMC, of course, is pro opio melanocortin uh, neurons. And there's opposing effects between the NPY-AGRP neuronal axis and the POMC axis, okay? So these neurons, well, all these neurons modulate food intake. They do so via projections into other brain regions, other brain nuclei, including the parabrachial nucleus, which conveys actually the satiety signals and nausea. Uh, and the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus, which we spent a lot of time just yesterday talking about. Now, when active, the AGRP neurons convey a negative valence, that is uh, basically an unpleasant sensation of hunger, thereby augmenting the drive to eat, okay? Ingestion of food alleviates that negative sensation by suppressing the activity of the MPY-AGRP neurons. So that's an interesting way to induce the appetitive response, dietary appetitive response association. Now, leptin (laughs) does the opposite of that, okay? But the other thing it does, interestingly, is it modulates the reward pathway. So the reward pathway, of course, is the dopaminergic uh, circuit and it does that and at the same time it diminishes food intake or the desire to have an appetite so remember the melanocortin gene itself the, the POMC so there's a there's a great deal known about the pharmacology of the melanocortin receptor and we're going to get into that right now so you have a propeptide remember that's the pro Opio, melanocortin, or POMC, and it's post-translationally modified by a series of convertases, or actually they're just serine proteases. So you make a propeptide, which is also known as the prohormone, and that those convertases work on it. So there's convertases one slash three, convertase two, et cetera. And so those function to start breaking down the immediate transcription translation product down to smaller and smaller fragments. <clears throat> so you get, end up with MSH peptides and ACTH peptides, and they're activated following the release from POMC, and they differ in the affinity for the five members of the melanocortin receptor family. You also have gamma MSH. Remember, MSH is the melanocyte-stimulating hormone. Remember, it's one of the products of the proteolytic degradation of POMC, the pre protein. So gamma MSH exhibits preferential affinity for the melanocortin-3 <laughs> receptor. Excuse me. Melanocortin-3 receptors associated with nutri- nutrient partitioning and feeding-related uh, motivational responses, but it's also linked to inflammation, and naturesis, okay? So you get an idea of how uh, wonderfully this becomes elaborated as you make these peptides from this original proopiomelanocortin melanocortin um, uh, gene product, that is translation product, okay? So that works for the MC3R, the gamma-MSH. The ACTH, okay, remember that's adrenocorticotropic hormone, right, is the only agonist for the melanocortin-2 receptor And then you have ASIP, which is the agouti signaling protein. Remember, this is going to be working against the melanocortin uh, axis. So ASIP exhibits a high affinity for the melanocortin 1 receptor and 4, okay? While the agouti uh, protein is a selective antagonist for the melanocortin 3 receptor. And I just told you that's the one where gamma MSH binds. But it also has an affinity, that is AGRP, the protein. Remember that AGRP is the agouti-related peptide, okay? Um, remember that what that does with diet, right? It gives you a negative sensation, so you want to eat because that removes the negative sensation, right? So it's working counter to the melanocortin matrix, okay, that axis matrix. So anyways, AGRP is like the antagonist for MC3R and 4R. Now, what I'm talking about here is actually pretty simplified, Okay. I'm not talking about how the melanocortin receptor accessory proteins also come to work. There is an MRAP1, MRAP2, that AP stands for accessory protein. And they actually associate also with the melanocortin receptors, and they modify or modulate the receptor activity by coupling to another series of proteins called arrestins, beta arrestins in specific. And they mediate receptor internalization and activation of an intracellular signaling cascade, which ultimately leads, of course, downstream to signal transduction and gene expression, as well as changes in metabolic uh, sequelae, okay? So there's there's always more involved when you look deeper and deeper into it. Now, the receptor binding of the MSH, <laughs> okay, results in activation of the stimulatory subunit of a trimeric G protein couple receptor, you know, the, the old-fashioned a, a beta, alpha beta gamma, And that's for all members of the melanocortin receptor family. And that results, obviously, because that's how these work, these these tripartite G proteins, by activating adenylate cyclase. Adenylate cyclase, of course, converts ATP into cyclic AMP. So everything is downstream from cyclic AMP, such as cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinases, is going to be activated when ACTH or MSH binds to any of these receptors. Okay. So again, I told you what MC3R does, MC4R also is involved in nutrient partitioning, also involved in satiety, feeding related motivational responses. Uh, There is some sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system uh, material that also goes on. Um, So this is, again, a continuation of this long drawn out pathway. Um, So adenylate cyclase causes the accumulation of cyclic AMP, and then again, like I said, downstream processing of all of that occurs. So what happens when you activate AMP kinase? This is now not the cyclic AMP kinase, but AMP kinase. What happens there is that increases appetite. So this is, again, working counter. Now, if you've listened to previous Varev med lectures and authentic biochemistry lectures, you're aware of the fact that AMP kinase is turned on when you're in a autophagic mode, for example, or when the cell is deprived of carbon. So when you get a deprivation of carbon, the cell goes to an autophagotosis so, or, so that some of the poly proteins and some of the larger molecular mass compounds inside the cell are broken down, converted to amino acids, amino acids converted to alpha-keto acids, the TCA cycle, Uh, TCA cycle runs as dehydrogenases, makes NADH, FADH2, a little bit of GTP um, and what it serves basically, and also uh, converts uh, to OAA. OAA leads into the cytosol. OAA can lead into glucose, so there's gluconeogenesis turned on by these pathways, as well as, of course, just plain old ATP to drive then um, all the other machinery necessary. So that's the bioenergetics of the system, right? So AMP kinase is highly expressed, actually, in that arcuate. And dorsomedial, dorsomedial and paraventricular hypothalamic nuclei. It's also found in the lateral hypothalamic area, the LHA. So, all the regions of the hypothalamus seem to be enriched with AMP kinase expression. So, hypothalamic AMP kinase, remember that's turned on when AMP builds up, which means ATP is low, is part of the adaptive change in the physiological regulation of feeding. In fact, fasting increases. But refeeding inhibits the amp kinase pathway in all those hypothalamic regions. So hypothalamic amp kinase, dominant negative isoforms, I'm going to explain that to you in a moment, decrease the expression of the orexigenic neuropeptides, AGRP and neuropeptide Y in the uh, ARC. Now, okay, what do I mean by a dominant negative? The AMP kinase dominant negative. Dominant negative in genetics means a mutation whose gene product basically adversely affects the normal wild-type gene product within the same cell, of course. <clears throat> that usually occurs if the product can still interact with the same elements as the wild-type product but blocks some aspect of its function. Like, for example, a mutation the a transcription factor that removes the activation domain but still contains the DNA binding domain. Obviously, going to bind to DNA, It's going to compete with uh, fully solvent, fully competent forms of that transcription factor for that site on the DNA, enhancer element, promoter element, for example, part of the chromatin remodeling region of of the uh, DNA molecule. And all of that will then serve to decrease transcription, right? So that's why it's called the dominant negative, dominant negative. So the product, like I said, can block the wild-type transcription factor from binding the DNA site, and that's going to reduce the level of gene activation. Another example is a protein that is functional as a dimer. So if you get a mutation that removes the functional domain but retains the dimerization domain, you can cause a dominant negative phenotype of that protein. Let's say it's a receptor or even an enzyme. And that's because some of the fracture of the protein dimers would be missing one of the functional domains. Okay, so now you understand what a dominant negative is. And AMP dom- dominant negative isoforms decrease the expression of the orexigenic pep- neuropeptides. Remember, that's AGRP and neuropeptide Y. And that's, and that's of course, in the arcuate nucleus, okay? Now, overexpression of an AMP kinase constitutively active, or AMP kinase CA isoform, elevates the fasting-induced expression of AGRP and NPY in the arcuate nucleus, as well as expression of melanin concentrating hormone or MCH in the LHJ, right? The lateral hypothalamic. So, AMP. So, what do, what do I mean by a constitutively active? Constitutively active in genetic jargon is, is a gene that's always transcribed regardless of any regulatory influence. And many or perhaps any, most genes are actually constitutively transcribed at some usually low level. However, when the level of transcription can be turned up or down by the action of regulatory genes, that's really a problem if you have a constitutively active now gene product. So that's what I meant by that. Now, abkinase AMP kinase senses several nutritional hormonal stimuli. So there's the activity of the hypothalamic AMP kinase, and it's mediated, again, by specific regulation of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. In fact, because there's inhibition of the hypothalamic amp kinase, that can actually lead to anorexia and furthermore to increase thermogenesis and therefore elevated energy expenditure. And that makes it a, an interesting target perhaps for drugs that want to enhance that, that is for obesity. Um, there's also potential for controlling both sides of the energy balance equation, obviously. So this is an idea that's been you know, looked at, there are drugs probably that have been analyzed in the rodent model, certainly they have been, but they don't come without some other consequences. Those consequences, of course, are that if you turn on something that normally is only regulated um, via tight control throughout the neural circuitry, and now you're amplifying it with an exogenous drug, you're going to lose all those controlling feedback mechanisms and end up probably having off-target effects of the drug, which could be either enhancing morbidity or even mortality. So often when you lead down these pathways, it's not a good thing. So let me just uh, mention here about some key pathophysiological paradoxes. And Going back to leptin now. Remember that leptin's working on that AGRP, NPY, and then adversely the POMC nuclei of the hypothalamus, right? So the absence of leptin in what are called OB mice is associated with lots of different physiological changes, including, now listen to this, hypothermia, infertility, immune dysregulation, and insulin resistance, even in starvation, right? Many, there are a lot of other changes that are generally associated with obesity, such as metabolic syndrome. And of course, as I said, insulin resistant, which can also lead to metabolic syndrome. All those changes are correlated with natural starvation. This obtains, then, that the OB mice are obese because their brains interpret a low leptin level as life-threatening low adipose tissue mass, okay? So that's how it's functioning. So they detect low adipose, even though there's actually quite high adipose. That's why they're obese. So this obtains that sensing of low leptin levels in addition to inducing a state of positive energy balance to restore body mass, activates the adaptive starvation response that conserves energy during times of privation and increases the obesogenic state, right? So consequently, leptin treatment corrects all those pathophysiological abnormalities, as long as there are receptors. So what's the case for leptin-mediated adipose homeostasis then? Increases in leptin, uh, uh, the protein level, leads to weight loss by decreasing food intake and suppressing what are called the compensatory decrease in energy expenditure that's typically associated with dieting and with a concomitant drop in depot fat, and all of that is in association with the elevation of leptin concentration in sera. This weight loss is correlated with lipolysis via activation of the sympathetic efferent signaling, as we've mentioned, and subsequent decreases in adipose mass due mostly to uh, beta oxidation of the fatty acids, which means, makes, means it goes down to acetyl-CoA, and you make a lot of NADH and FADH two, so you have a lot of good bioenergetics that way. Now, leptin maintains a homeostatic control of adipose tissue mass, and that all suggests that leptin mediates caloric intake, and thus it is an adaptive physiological mechanism. So there are a lot of different things going on here, Uh, with the way that leptin function, again, it works through the hypothalamus, through a sympathetic nerve, uh, for example, through an alpha adrenergic receptor. That's going to um, phosphorylate AMP kinase. And so uh, the phosphorylation of AMP kinase is going to dysregulate then the acetylchloric carboxylase. It's going to phosphorylate that. You're not going to get, because you have phosphorylated acetylchloric carboxylase, you're not going to get the production of malonyl-CoA. So when that doesn't happen, then what happens is you get fatty acid oxidation. Okay. So that's what happens. Fatty acid oxidation increases with fatty acid oxidation increasing because of the drop in malonyl-CoA. You also have concomitant carnitine palmitoyl transferase activity, driving fatty acids into the mitochondria. So that's how that works. Now, that was uh, published a few years back in the Indian Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism, 2012, Uh, And that was actually volume 16, page 562. That's where that information came from. Now, another paper published in Metabolism in 2015, this is volume 64, page 35, tells us this story. Leptin resistance, uh, what what happens in leptin resistance in diet-induced obesity? This is, again, an animal model. So overnutrition of specific nutrients, you get fat store increases, but you also get increases in leptin and pro-inflammatory cytokines. So you get hyperleptinemia, you get obesity, and you get inflammation. Okay. All that then sends signals to the utilization of nutrients, such as fatty acids and carbohydrates and amino acids. And then you get what's known as central and peripheral leptin resistance. So you have impaired glucose and lipid metabolism in solid organs and in muscle, so in the liver and the kidney and the skeletal muscle. You get an increase in food intake and you get an impaired nutrient absorption. All of that is because of overnutrition in this rodent model. So most forms of obesity in the animals are associated with high endogenous plasma le- leptin levels and a diminished response to the exogenous hormone itself. The normal plasma leptin concentration in animals and in humans, interestingly, it's pretty tight in terms of actual amount in the serum, is about five nanogram per ml. With a diet-induced obese mouse being hyperleptinemic, and it gets up to 150 nanogram. So you can see the tremendous increase in the hyperleptinemic model, okay? From five nanogram per ml of, of blood to 150 nanogram. And with that, no decrease in obesity when leptin levels are increased, and even further uh, um, problems with pharmacotherapy. So lean animals respond to leptin normally by losing weight, whereas the diet-induced obese animals are leptin resistance. And that is similar to and uses a model for what's going on with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. So leptin leptin resistance is complex involves multiple aspects of the signaling and transport receptor binding pathway so the induction of the protein phosphatase 1b and or that socs3 i mentioned last time and those are all part of controlling and modulating the leptin receptor that dimer that's formed the long receptor um, sox three has to be associated with that phosphorylation of those tyrosines. Remember, for the receptor function correctly, and the ph- and the phosphatase is the feedback mechanism that strips off the phosphates off all those tyrosine residues on the leptin receptor long arm, four different uh, locations, and then those associate with phosphorylated Socs three. So this is what we're talking about here. So induction of that axis in cells expressing a leptin receptor, of course, contributes to leptin resistance, and that can be induced by hyperleptinemia. So it looks like that whole process gets dysregulated uh, upon any kind of alteration of leptin receptor now, right? So the molecular cause of a leptin resistance here includes a constitutive defects in the neural circuit downstream of leptin. So like a no leptin receptor, for example, or any defect in, say, the melanocortin signaling, um, and this, this has been well-documented, particularly the melanocortin-4 receptor. So there are Mendelian causes of obesity in humans, and they are expressed in the central nervous system, and most of them are components of what are known as the neural circuit, uh, the, the leptogenic neural circuit, okay? so But they're very, very, very rare. But we're telling you that the diet induced can can cause this. That's not a genetic disorder. That's because of overeating, right? So a decreased transport of leptin across the blood brain barrier might also contribute to leptin resistance, both in those diet induced uh, uh, obese mice and in those New Zealand obese mice, which lose weight when you give them intracerebroventricular but not subcutaneous administration. Of replacement levels of leptin. So you have to get it right to the region in the central nervous system, otherwise, it doesn't work. Because leptin, when it's in circulation, doesn't necessarily transport across the blood-brain barrier efficiently. So there's that to think about too. So you have local leptin activity, right? Or the blood-brain barrier. And if you remember from last time, associated with that, um, that, that medial region of the hypothalamus, of that whole part of that ventricular region, that allows for a porosity of the blood-brain barrier during normal leptin signaling. When that gets lost and you don't get the porosity of the blood-brain barrier increased, circulating leptin no longer works, you get leptin resistance. So decreased transport across that blood-brain barrier or a lower, perhaps, Vmax of activity could, of course, be associated with obesity. And you can get that logical conclusion from looking at those premises. Those propositions sound good, and the data backs it up. The evidence backs it up. So it's logical, and it's evidentiary. So therefore, there is good reason to believe that there's a tight correlation there. So with leptin receptor signaling, the binding of the leptin to its receptor leads to the formation of what's known as the OBR, that's the receptor, JAK2 complex, okay? That results in cross-phosphorylation, of a particular tyrosine residue, 1138, on the OBRB, that receptor. And that's crucial for STAT3 activation, which stimulates the s 3 expression that negatively inhibits leptin signaling via tyrosine 985. And there are also additional sites on the JAK2. So the protein tyrosine phosphatase 1B I was just talking about, is also capable via separate means, via dephosphorylation, I mean, of inhibiting leptin signaling. Okay, and that's because you get JAK2 phosphorylation and that whole regulatory pathway. Then, if JAK2 is phosphorylated, that leads to activation of MAP kinase and insulin substrate uh, receptor substrate P13 kinase signaling pathways. So you see there's all kinds of interconnected, canonical signal transduction pathways in all cells which are being fed into by that adipokine, specifically leptin uh, receptor. That's what I want you to get uh, as a take-home message here. So in leptin-resistant tissue, serum leptin interacting proteins, these are S-slips they're called, and soluble leptin receptor, they bind to circulating adipose-secreted leptin, and they all inhibit its action. That's what those normally function to do, these slips serum leptin interacting proteins okay free leptin engages the long form of its receptor that's now called the ob-rb that homodimerizes homodimer- intracellularly activated jak 2 phosphorylates at tyrosine 1138 on that receptor signal transduction and a protein called uh, Translation protein 3, right? Signal transduction and translation protein 3, that's STAT3. Okay, all of that has um, an activated domain, okay? And it has a CERC homology, and so that's the SH2 domain. So you have the OBRB, that's the receptor for leptin, JAK2 complex, and that activates STAT3, which homodimerizes then translocates to the nucleus, finally we're at the gene expression level to modulate gene expression, gene transcription, actually, by chromatin remodeling. And there's also, of course, epigenetic factors here, which I'm not going to talk about today. So STAT3 upregulates the expression of suppressor of cytokine signaling 3. That's what s 3 is. So STAT3 upregulates the expression of that. And the protein tyrosine phosphatase 1b, those two things we just talked about. Those block... The Jak2 phosphorylation, and so basically, it's thought when you put all this together that the central leptin resistance, leptin resistance, actually promotes obesity by driving greater hyperleptinemia. Now, in non-leptin resistant tissue, like in an immune cell, which is exposed to hyperleptinemia that receptor, the OBRB receptor, may signal excessively through multiple signaling pathways, including Jak Jakstat. is kind of like the canonical receptor mediated signal transduction pathway of phosphorylation in lymphocytes, for example, right? Immune cells, like we're saying. And then you get also activation of the insulin receptor substrate two and the phosphatidylinositol three kinase pathway. So that's for short, that's IRS2, P13K. And you also get nitric oxide generated, and that ultimately may promote cardiovascular disease through tissue-specific mechanisms. Now, all this was published in a JACC paper back in 2008. So you get an idea about all the potential diseases. I'm going to stop here, and we'll get back to talking about, we're going to finish Our leptin discussion again on authentic biochemistry. They're going to hop back onto the video lectures, summarize it, and bring in diavent ontology. And the other criterion I've been trying to suggest we need to deploy in order to come up with a better understanding of how leptin resistance and obesity may be targeted pharmacologically and also nutritionally and via behavioral changes. So, this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying, bye for now. From Authentic Biochemistry.